This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Meredith Monk. She's an award-winning composer, singer, director, and choreographer. I spoke with her on January 11, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in a private recording studio in New York City. This interview is included in our show, Meredith Monk's Voice. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. So if you put those headphones okay. on, I'll speak to you over there. Is there a right-left particularly? or? Um, it's a mono signal to your headphones, so don't worry. Should I take one off or just leave them both on? Um, it's better to keep them both on because otherwise we might have a delay between the oh. two cities. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. And, uh, we are connected. You, the right-left doesn't matter, though. Which ear? Do no, you like? Okay. you're getting a mono feed. Okay. And uh, we are connected right now. So I think I'll do this and do the other way where my... Came to this. There we go. Just tell me a little bit about how you came today to the studio, and I'll use that story to set your level. Oh, uh, we got into a taxi, and we came up 6th Avenue, and we were passing Merce Cunningham studio in the old days of 6th Avenue and 14th Street, and we were talking about it because he did his last, that, that company did their last concert on New Year's Eve. Oh, right. Did he wish that the company dispersed, right? Like After two years, uh huh. Wow. Hi, Meredith. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, it's Krista. Oh, Krista, I just want to tell you how much I love your show. I listen every Sunday night when I'm in New York. Well, that just it's so me. great. It's just fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm just really excited to have you on the other end of the microphone. Thank you. Hey, Paul, can you hear me? Can, well, tell tell Paul I said hello. Paul, Krista said hello. He just ran hello, in the Krista. room. <laughs> I was just adjusting the air. Okay. Um, happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So, so you know, this is going to be, I think, interesting to do because uh, I'm, I'm, you've probably done these ISDN interviews before, haven't you? Have you done? You, much you of mean this? Or, uh, like you, telephone kind of interview? Yeah. I did one with Terry Gross many, many years ago, okay. and it was great. We had a wonderful time. Yeah, it's more intimate than than you think. But um, I mean, what you do is so multidimensional and and also visual. And but mm-hmm. of course, radio is a visual medium. So well, well my use mom it that was way. a singer on radio. She I used know. to do the Muriel cigar commercials, and so I grew up with in radio. I grew up like in a radio booth. Like you know, I had to be quiet though. That was a big problem. Yeah, right. Okay, well you're not. You don't have to be quiet today. And 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 I want to. Um, so I got a list of, and thank you so much for of cho- for choosing some tracks, some Good. songs. And yeah. what I'm thinking is, you know, what we will be able to do, I think, so wonderfully uh, in production is layer that music in to the conversation. But mm-hmm. what I'd like to do, I think, is just let it organically be mentioned and emerge as we speak. Mm-hmm. So just feel mm-hmm. free to... Um, I may not point it. I'm not going to point at everything. Um, mm-hmm, at the end, mm-hmm. we can also, you know, we can kind of wrap it up and see if there's some things you want to talk about. But as as a song occurs to you, whether it's on this list or not, just you know, let's let's talk about it then, and then we can mm-hmm. we can make the magic with the sound. Okay. Okay. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, are, Chris, are we are we ready to go? Yeah. Just a quick thing for Paul. If we could mm. notch the headphones down just a teeny point, and we'll be all set to go. Okie doke. Assuming that's still okay. comfortable yeah. for Mary. Try that. Okay. Are you worried about my? Actually, that's much better for me. Okay. Oh, that's better. Okay. It was a a little loud. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Um, Great. Then we can go. Um, Yeah. So, 
So you are, I, I read, a fourth-generation singer. Mm-hmm. And I did find that so interesting that your mother sang for radio because what it reminded me of is that when I was growing up in a very small town in you know in Oklahoma, I imagined that when I heard a song coming out of the radio, there was a person singing it at my small town radio station, right? I, I used to think that. how exhausted they got that they had to go around to all the radio. But your mother actually was somebody who did that. She was there every day because uh, in, those, in those days there wasn't tape. So she did a, a soap commercial. It was called D.U.Z. Does Everything. And she did it for a soap opera. And so she was at one o'clock every day for The Road of Life, which was ongoing for years. So it, it, was, it was a live situation every day. And, and so your great-grandfather was a cantor in Russia. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And was yep. his father also a musician? I don't know. I, I, I just traced it back to my great-grandfather, yeah. and it's just uh, stories. But my grandfather, I, I knew, and he had come uh, to America from Russia in the late 1900s, and um, he was a bass baritone. I, I remember his voice very well, although mm. he was in his 80s when, you know, when I was a child. But he had that beautiful, resonant Russian bass baritone, and he opened a music conservatory up in what is now Harlem, but at that point it was Washington Heights. Mm. And as well as singing all over the New York area, he sang at BAM, Carnegie Hall. Uh, They would do recitals with a bass baritone and contralto. Mm. So I have programs of his uh, his concerts. So, you know, I... It seems to me that... So obviously music was was in you from the beginning. It seems to me that there's such an organic link between your art and, you know, what what we call spirituality. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wonder if, if that was there in your childhood, was that connection there, whether it was expressed or not. I'm not sure whether I was aware of it as a little child, but I was very much um, uh, in love with music. And I, I remember that I used to sing myself to sleep when I was a child. I mean, it was a very natural, singing was a natural kind of language for me. Mm-hmm. And... Um, my mother told me that I would sing things back right away, even before I started talking. And I read music before I read words, actually. And there's an interesting story in your childhood also that you had some, your eyes were crossed a bit. You had a weak eye. And I had the, with what's called strabismus. Yeah, strabismus. And so um, that was. Um, did I did I did I go over? Do you want to ask that question again, Krista? Did I? Oh yeah, no, don't worry. We can you? edit later. If you, okay. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to ask that question? Yeah. Again? No. So you had a you had um, you had a weak eye, or you had some coordinations with trouble with coordination. I had what's called strabismus, where the eyes don't um, coordinate. Uh, they don't. They, you can't fuse uh, two images into one the way that most people can. So I still look through one eye at a time, although. Um, your brain compensates for that, so I'm not aware of that at all. So if, I, if I were looking through two eyes, I'd see two images. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had operations as a, as a child. Um, but I think the right-left coordination was not um, you know, that developed. And yet I had a lot of rhythm, natural kind of rhythm as a child. So my mother uh, took me to Dalcroze Eurythmics, which is a wonderful way of teaching um, music through the body. And I think for me, it was more teaching my body through music. <laughs> it was a reverse because most right, kids, right. yeah. So, so it was, um, uh, it was so wonderful. And um, I was looking into Dalcroze. He was a Swiss composer in the late nineteenth century who 
uh, had a student who was ha- having trouble with rhythms, and he noticed that the student had a very nice flow through his body as he was walking and running. And so he, he, he had the inspiration to teach that student how to, to hear rhythms through physical kind of exercises. So one that was one aspect. So it was very integrative of the body and, and music. Mm-hmm. And then another aspect was the solfege system. So we did learn how to do the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do system of scales. And then there was another uh, aspect, which was improvisation. So those three things together make a very holistic kind of way of thinking about music. And, you know, some people say of you that you have a voice that dances. And this story, actually, <laughs> you know, is, I mean, that would be one way to describe, actually, how you began with music. I think that I don't think of them that separate. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think of the voice as a kinetic kind of instrument, and, and I think of the body and the voice as one. So they, they help each other. And most of the people that I work with in my ensemble come from either a background of music where they're also very open to movement or uh, they're movers or dancers that are very good singers. So that that's always something that we work with, the relationship between the two. And so you, you described having having melodies um, even before you had words, even before you um, had uh, sort of classic formal songs. Mm-hmm. And it yes. seems so it's interesting if you look at your stories, you never really left that behind. Um, I'm sure there must have been pressure for you to get classically trained and to do something more traditional. I mean, how did it happen that you that you resisted that? I mean, you know, how did it possess you that you could that you could do music so differently? Well, you know, the funny thing is that I I, I wasn't really aware of how much that early background the the Dow Curls influenced me until I did make an opera for Houston Grand Opera and um because of that situation, I there were a few people from my ensemble that were in the piece, but then there were I had to to uh, audition more classically trained people, and I, we might have heard or seen like about three hundred people. It was insane. I would do these mm-hmm. long workshops mm-hmm. because I I think auditions are really hard on on the human level. I really mm-hmm. like to give something back to people, and also I was not only looking for people that could sing well, but um, people that uh, could improvise. Uh, people that had a kind of radiant generosity about them mm. and um, that were very open to new new ways of doing things. So, um, you know, the workshops were more like classes. And um, so we chose some amazing human beings that I'm still working with to this day. Mm. Uh, and um, I would do my... My rhythms are pretty complicated. And um, usually in the Western tradition, you don't really have that rhythmic um, articulation in the same complexity. So I, but I think second, you know, I, I, it's kind of second nature to me. So I would do these rhythms and then I would sort of go off into this very rhythmically complex phrases. And then I'd come back to what would be the one of a phrase and they'd go, how did you come back? You know, how do you know? And I'd say, I don't know. I mean, it just is completely intuitive for me. And they said, ah, oh, it's that Dalcro's training. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> really? maybe it really had more influence than I, than I realized. Yeah. So that, that became something that I found out about later. But as far as the classical training, um, I mean, my mother was not only a radio singer, but she also um, did classical recitals. And I remember going to her teacher when maybe I was about 13 or 14, and I think it was a little early for me. And there was something that was very uncomfortable for me about it. I was doing a lot of folk singing at that time. I I had a guitar, and um, actually I went to Sarah Lawrence, and I 
partially earned my way through by singing at children's birthday parties, which was more like really actually being the babysitter, but I did have <laughs> the kids where I was singing. But I was also in the voice department finally by my junior year, and um, I was doing leader, I was doing opera workshop, and I mean, it was a wonderful training, and it's a training that I still keep up as, you know, to keep my instrument in tune and to, um, you know, really keep strong and flexible. But I realized at that point that what I really wanted to do was to create something of my own Hmm. and to really make my own world, and that there was something about that interpretive form that for me was not right. Right. So, you know, it's more that I have a lot of respect for the Western um, European tradition, but it's really... I'm really trying to do something that that makes the voice uh, universal and kind of transcendent. Mm. Say, Chris, my volume dropped in my headphones kind of drastically. I could still hear, but I could see that it didn't drop for you guys because <laughs> no, no. So you, your volume in my I could st- oh okay there now now I hear my. Do you want me to say something? Yeah, now Crystal? I hear you again. Everything's okay. back. Did you Good. change something? Not really. It was funny. It was just this dramatic. I could just bear. I could hear the last few sentences, but not well. Anyway, okay. I think we're back. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. What did you just said? Uh, 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 transcendent and something which had some little mysterious thing happen with the technology. Universal. Yeah. Yeah. Universal and transcendent. Um, um, yeah. So I I I see. So I, I I recognize this when I when I read you. Um, Describing yourself as kind of an archaeologist of your own instrument, of your voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought it might be interesting to just ask you about, um, you know, discoveries you made, moments when you kind of dug something out and it taught you or changed you. Well, there's a moment that I always talk about that mm-hmm. um, uh, was, was the mid-60s, and I had already been doing these interdisciplinary kind of works because I think the other part of this way of thinking about things is um, my my idea was to um, integrate and weave together different perceptual forms. And um, I think that was because as a child I also had a lot of different interests, you know, movement and, and images. And um, when I was still at Sarah Lawrence, I was making pieces combining voice and movement and image, imagery and um, gesture and uh, sometimes a little bit of text. Um, so that was the early on. I realized that that was something that was um, very ne- necessary for me as a psychic uh, necessity, you know, to weave together these different aspects. But then I also realized that there was a there was another resonance, a social resonance, which really had to do with our perceptions as human beings and affirming the richness of those perceptions. And in a very fragmented world that we're living in, coming back to some very fundamental kinds of energies and, Mm. you know, the ancient um, worship forms or, you know, early theater, those forms were really about um, weaving together music and storytelling and, and movement, ritual movement. So, you know, there's there are precedents in, in the ancient times. Certainly that's the accounts of ancient times. And then you could say in the non-Western European traditions, you know, like um, African traditions where you, you can be a storyteller, a singer, and a dancer, and a, and a master drummer. And, you know, it's really the, the more things that are within one body, actually, the more honored you are. So it's just in the Western European tradition where these things got separated and I think I had that instinct that somehow doing this work like this was a way of also 
healing the kind of fragmentation and specialization that had formed and developed in in the world that we're living in. So, you know, that was very early on. So after having done these pieces, these performance kind of pieces, um, which did have some vocal work within them, but I was really missing the straight-out singing, um, you know, the kind of deep kind of level of singing. So I went back to the piano and started just vocalizing, just regular technical kind of vocalizing. And one day I had the revelation that the voice could be like the body. It could move like the spine. It could jump. It could it could turn. It could fall. Within the voice were male and female, um, uh, different characters, landscapes, ways of producing sound. And I had the sensation of something extremely ancient, that it was really going back to a, a, a very primal, visceral form of expression, um, pre-verbal expression. And at the same time, for me, it was almost coming back to my family in my own way because I think mm. coming from a really musical family is kind of challenging, you know, to find your spot there. Right, right. <laughs> so, I've heard that from other musicians. From musician <laughs> so uh, this was really as if my blood was speaking and, mm. and I felt that I, I was born to do it in a way. So then I started really deeply exploring my own voice and... Um, you know, seeing all the different elements. Uh, I think my first exploration was the range, you know, how high and low I could go yes. and and then just different ways of producing sound. And then the music just started coming. And then also I I was um, not uncomfortable not using words right. because I had come from also a movement background. And I, I um, as much as I love hu- human language and I love to talk and, you know, I love articulation, of of words, I think that I also trust very much that there are certain energies that we can't talk about, and that um, to really get to that expression of of non discursive kind of mind, yeah, um, that words get in the way, and so that I immediately started working non verbally with the voice, and you know that is something that um, that really became very clear to me as I just kind of immersed in your music is. Um, it is very unfamiliar. In, in so you say we've t- we took a lot of things apart, but one thing we definitely put together in Western music it, when the voice is involved is words and music, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and exactly. I, I almost felt some kind of resistance in myself, right? Like that, like uh, you know, it needed words to be a song. I, I mm. realized that that was a kind of habitual expectation. Mm-hmm. 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 That's really interesting. Let's see, for me. Well, I, you know, there are the wonderful songsmiths and, and wonderful people that do put words and music together in such a beautiful way. And, you know, it is very enlightening to hear that music. But for me, the words get in the way, actually, yeah. of the heart-to-heart kind of expression that allows for um, each person to hear it and, and hook into their minds and hook into their hearts and hook into their memory. And you know, I'm I'm saying this was kind of an initial resistance, which which goes away, and it didn't it, it didn't really contradict you know the beauty that I was experiencing. I just think it was an it was kind of a, it was an expectation that was that had to be suspended of That's how so how I'm really used to you know how you're used to hearing sung music. Yeah, and mm-hmm. what you're saying though, I mean, I think that may also be. Uh, you know, maybe there's also a layer of kind of um, of emotional surprise because, as you say, then things are being communicated that do. That do bypass words, and yeah, because I think emotion or feeling—you know—we have so many more shades of feeling that we can't label. And I guess ultimately, as an artist, I'm so interested in uncovering the invisible and the 
uncovering the you know the mysterious and uncovering um what would i say the inexpre- inexplicable yeah. <laughs> so um the things that we actually can't label mm-hmm. that's that's a kind of um you know mentality right words are always approximate for mystery mhm mhm so when people say that you're a pioneer of extended vocal techniques you know how how would you um explain that and you know what you know what that the origin of that is and what that means to you I think it's just that um, when I had the rev- that revelation, I realized that the voice could be used like an instrument. And so um, it was really more knowing that, there, there, that anything was possible with the human voice. And I think that that's what people are now calling extended vocal technique. I mean, <clears throat> I've always been loath to categorize anything. And, you know, to even call it like a category like that, um, you know, is I guess, it, again, it's a way that people can identify something. But... Um, I think I was just thinking more in terms of the voice as a messen- as the messenger of my soul, hmm. and I was just f- trying to follow it to the best of my ability and to listen uh, to what it needed to do and say, and um, so that that's more the way that I was working. And so something like dolmen music is it also becomes kind of an orchestra, vocal orchestra. Or- mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. It's it's funny when you hear it. It's kind of hard to realize that there's only six singers. It sounds like yes. there might be uh, twelve or twenty or something like yeah. that. So um, it it also is um, very much about keeping the flexibility of not only the voice but also the mind and um, the spirit. I mean, um, the the people that were singing with me in dolma music, I met them when they were very young, and so they didn't have the expectations and having to drop what they had learned, um, you know, in, in the way that, say, the people that I was working with for Atlas, which was the opera that I did for Houston Grand Opera, in a way they had to let go of a lot of their of what they had learned or their habitual behavior. But with these young people that, that I was working with in the days that we were doing dolmen music, the language of, of, of the voice and the way that I, I was working with it was something that became second nature to them. Hmm. And did how did you watch them? Were there? Do you think their careers then were different? Their lives in music were different because they did that, had that experience at a young age. I think that people um, in, in that group have gone on to do very different things, yeah. and um, but I think that 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 was such a wonderful experience for all of us. So you know these these experiences that we have that are very intimate. You know I think that singing together is very very intimate, and I always say that the music or the images or anything are just a kind of armature for for revealing the radiance of these performers. Mm. You know, that's that I realized that when I was making Atlas, this it was a, th- a three act work. It had a wall that moved, and you know, an orchestra. I was like, oh, you know, just um, I mean, it, it was everything but the kitchen sink in there. I mean, not in terms of the form, but I mean, you know, there was another there was another opera going on backstage because the costumes were flying and everything back there. <laughs> so I, you know, so it was a big, big production, and I realized at a certain point that, you know, that all of that was is very beautiful, but really what was happening there was just an armature to allow for or a structure or form to allow for these amazing performers, these generous, radiant performers, for that to come across. And I think that performing is, you're so in tune with each other. You know, it's it's such an amazing template of the possibility of human behavior, of generosity and 
being there for the other person and, um, mm. you know, being so sensitive to the environment and to the other people. You know, you, you're, uh, you have a Buddhist practice, right? A meditation mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. And I've wondered, um, I wondered as I was kind of, you know, reading you and watching you, um, how that, uh, you know, you've talked about singing like meditation, the, fo- the focus, the, the meditation mm-hmm. focus is also there when you're, when you're singing, the, the presence. Mm-hmm. And I've wondered if you think that gives you a different relationship to the audience. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting question. Hmm. Um, you know, in a way, I always say that as a young artist, I think I knew some of these uh, what I would now call fundamental Buddhist principles, but I, I feel like I knew them intuitively as a young artist and a performer. Um, and then at a certain point, um, I um, I was asked to teach at Naropa Institute, and then I, you know, it was through the art, you know, not through the Buddhist mm-hmm. practice, but really through the art that I learned about Buddhism. And then I realized all these things that I had had as principles, aesthetic principles, really were fundamental Buddhist principles. So that was really interesting. And one of them is something that you're talking about, which is um, I always think of the relationship between the audience and the performer as a kind of infinity sign or a figure eight of energy that goes from mm-hmm. the performer to the audience and then back to the, from the audience back to the performer. And it's just this constant flow of energy between these two bodies of people. But the, the beauty of a live performance is that we're all in the same space at the same time. Right. And I don't think we have that many situations in in the world like that. You've even so that's why I'm a dinosaur. The audience as a congregation, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like like a dinosaur holding out a live performance, <laughs> live performance. You know, not the screen, live performance. Because I think that there is something about it that's so unique and and it's so necessary to remember again. And and you know, another I, I see you when people talk, you use the word transcendence a minute ago. But I, I always see you also insisting that, um, you know, that that art, um, that music is about waking up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that and I don't know if those t- two things have to be intention, but I sense that if you could, ch- if you had to choose between transcendence and waking up and being right there in that moment, um, you would choose the latter. And as you're saying, I mean, live performance is as direct and awake an experience one hopes as anything we do. Mm-hmm. That's also, again, so interesting because uh, actually I don't see those two things as opposites. I actually think that when you are that present mm-hmm. and you are that awake and the audience actually experiences themselves, you know, mm. the deepest part of themselves, then the whole situation becomes transcendent mm. because we're not – because our the way we live our lives is not necessarily with that level of presence. Right. And And also certainly in this society we're taught to actually be distracted and diverted all the time from feeling, in a sense, you could say the the pain, uh, the good pain, you know, the pain as in open-heartedness and, and um, raw rawness of the moment, the pain as well as the pleasure, everything in, in, in one in, the, in that moment. So, you know, one of the words that... Um that has been a subject, an artistic subject for you, is mercy. This is a production, you know, so let's, you know, thinking about, um, a, a, you know, kind of a spiritual notion, a religious notion, certainly a Buddhist notion. Um, the reason that came to me just, in, in, you know, after what you just said is I'd been, I was talking um, 
not too long ago with a, a great scholar of the Old Testament prophets. <laughs> There's a different connection for you, okay? But he talked to me about, and I was actually asking him about words that the prophets use, that, you know, that he talks about this disruptive language that what, pro, he actually said that prophets are always poets, Mm-hmm. They're not in the first, and it was very. I think you would like it, really. You know that that mm-hmm. um, that they're not they're not they're not issues based, um, but they kind of create a new imagination mm-hmm. and are disruptive in a creative way for people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was talking to him about words that the prophets use, and mercy was one of them. Mm-hmm. And he reminded me that the Hebrew word for mercy has connotations of the womb, um, as does, in fact, the Arabic word. Oh. And um but but you know what that sounds so kind of <clears throat> pretty <laughs> kind of lovely mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> And I mm-hmm. said to him you know isn't that isn't that wonderful because uh the connection of the mother to the child is kind of the the absolute moment the absolute image we have for um seeing seeing someone else's well-being as connected to our own and he yeah. said <laughs> i'm finally getting to the connection here he said yes because it's so uncomfortable <laughs> oh that's so interesting and you yes. just and i yeah. actually you just you just echoed this but when i was looking mm-hmm. at something you wrote about mm-hmm. mercy mm-hmm. you know you said you, you use uh, you know words like pain joy Perseverance, continuance, that that whole mm-hmm. complex. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just offer that up to you as something I heard. That's so interesting. Well, these last years, and, and maybe mercy was the first time I was very aware of it. I mean, I think for many years, I mean, I've been trying to think, how do I... Um, how do I really keep on on affirming that my my Buddhist practice or meditation practice and my art practice are actually one? There's no there's no difference at all. And I think it's more, as I said, when I was a young artist, I intuitively knew these things. But one of the things of, about practicing over the years, uh, the meditation practice, is just becoming more aware of what I probably already knew. Which I guess hmm. meditation is anyway. It's about all of us becoming aware of what our basic nature is, which is you know that we have this fundamentally good nature <laughs> you know, i mean it's sort of the opposite of the of the um uh, the uh, original sin right. theory <laughs> it's the opposite but anyway so um i knew I, there was a certain point the it was the early 90s that i did a piece called facing north which was very inspired by being up at banff canada and the silence and the snow and um you know just this incredible environment and I, I was very aware that I was making a very meditative piece and that it was uh, like making a piece about sacred space. So that that was, you know, what I was aware of at that point. But uh, when I started working on Mercy, um, and I was collaborating, uh, collaborating with a wonderful visual artist, Anne Hamilton, so we did a lot of talking about this, I started becoming aware of that uh, of the fact that actually I wanted to spend the rest of my life working on pieces that I... It was basically making pieces about something you can't make pieces about. So there was never going to be like a definitive statement about anything, but it was much more that the the act of making artwork was also the act of contemplating something. Mm-hmm. And so Mercy was the first. The second one was Impermanence. Um, and then the latest piece that I've been working on with this this way of thinking about things is called Songs of Ascension. So Right, those, those are the three I wanted to talk yeah. to you about. So that, and yeah. so, you know, that's just, I don't think my practice of making art is so much different from, um, you know, the way that it always was, but it's much more just being aware of how do we spend time on this planet? You know, what what is the, how do you do work that's of benefit? 
that, and I think um, Anne Hamilton and I talked a lot about um, mercy being, you know, the basic theme of mercy was help and harm. Mm-hmm. You know, aspects more. of help and harm. Well, it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, the piece was quite abstract. It was not really, um, you know, it wasn't situations particularly. And one thing that I think pushed us over to really wanting to make a piece that would be called Mercy was that when I was in Ohio, the first time talking with her and working with her, um, we happened to see on television, there was a, a, a news broadcast of, uh, was the time of the um, inf- Infitata. And, and it was, uh, there was... Uh, there was a young man, a young a young father in, in, and in his, Israel. In, uh, uh, yes, mm-hmm. and there was a, a young father and his son. They were and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And both of the soldiers from both sides shot shot them, hmm. even though they were asking for mercy. Basically, hmm. in other words, they couldn't just. They were just coming home from school, or, and and they were in a situation, and these soldiers could not let them go by. Right. So that was pretty shock. You know, I I found that pretty shocking because it was. Um, it wasn't um, that it was a situation that was any kind of danger or, you know, when the adrenaline goes up or anything. Mm-hmm. It was more a situation. There were decisions that were made there. And and um, so that was something to think about. Right. That was harm, you know. And, they were and, kind um, of caught in a situation where mercy didn't seem possible. Couldn't apply or something mm-hmm. in that situation. So mm-hmm. the, I think that we started thinking about that and... Um, and just just basic help and harm. We were thinking about um, because Anne works a lot with um, little tiny cameras, and we were thinking about the hand and the mouth. You know, like for example, that the hand can hold a trigger. You know, can hold a, a gun, or the hand can actually touch someone. You mm-hmm. know, and and in the society where there's not a lot of touch, um, the the mouth can scream. You know, the voice can scream, or the mouth can sing a lullaby. Mm-hmm. So and so we did. There were a lot of images of hands and mouths in the in the piece. In mm. the this, the songs of ascension, I mean, ascension is also a a religious image, or it's it's mm-hmm. a very common religious image that you find in different traditions. Mm-hmm. Well, I was interested with that um, in why does worship always go up <laughs> or you know or in a lot of traditions it's it's uh, you know there's this idea of heaven or going up and how about going down like you know like the earth say in native american cultures so i was thinking about that but the the genesis of songs of ascension came from having dinner with a wonderful friend of mine norman fisher who is a very is fine poet abbot, right yes and former he's, zen, he's, huh? he's a former zen abbot mm-hmm. and a wonderful poet and we're good friends and uh, we were, I was just asking him what was he working on, and he was saying that he was working on translating the Psalms into contemporary language that also took into account his Zen practice. And he also, mm-hmm. I, we both come from a Jewish, uh, you know, background, and so you know we're both Jews, and so you know we have <laughs> that in common. And he's been going back to t- actually teaching meditation for uh, Jewish practitioners. You know, people who come from the Jewish tradition, he's teaching Jewish meditation, which is pretty great. And yeah. and so he was also talking about Paul Salon, who I was not familiar with, the the, uh, the poet who was a survivor of World War II, who talked about the psalms that were called so- Song of Ascents. Right. They sometimes are called Songs of Ascent and sometimes they're called Song of Ascents. And basically what, what they are are songs that are always about climbing up the mountain to the temple 
and there were 15 stairs that went up to the... On the top of the mountain, there were 15 stairs that went to the temple. And so people would would take a step and then sing a psalm and then take the next step and sing Mm. a psalm. And so to me, that was so fascinating. And also there were instruments as well. And so this idea of procession or walking, walking and making music as a, a, a form of worship was very fascinating to me. And so then I started also thinking about Mayan cultures and... In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's circumambulation. So circumambulation. So that's a different form. So it's going around, but the stupas are also vertical, um, yes. you know, forms. So these things were just going through my mind, and, and you know, music in space and and uh, music as worship. And you did this in this tower in Anne Hamilton's tower. You performed that. Is that right? She, Yes, it is. Uh, after we had done Mercy, she had mentioned to me, and but it was it's kind of in the back of my mind, uh, she was working on a project that she had been working on for, I think, it ultimately was 18 years. Um, in Northern California, Steve Oliver has a ranch up in um, Sonoma County, and he has uh, site-specific sculptures all over his land. And um, I think he had been in... Uh, he had. And I think he still does do con- a lot of construction work, and so um, he's very interested in engineering. So the the artists have made uh, work for the land, but then with his help and, and his engineering savvy, and he's an amazing person. Um, so she was telling me she was working on this tower, and then after I talked to Norman, I, I was also making a piece for Kronos String Quartet, mm. and I was thinking about... Um, the the next step was to think about the voices in relationship to the strings. So I'd made a string quartet, but then I loved um, the idea of working with voices and strings because the bowing arm is so much like the breath. So right. you know they're really comparable. So um, I I Anne was called me up and said, you know, we're going to finally finish the tower, and would you sing for the opening of the tower? And I said, I'd love to, um, and I want to tell you I'm working on this piece called Songs of Ascension, and maybe we can really figure out a way that I can make it for the tower. And so we went and sung for the opening, but we did more repertoire, like a cappella repertoire. And then we um, ended up, um, you know, I started to get to know the acoustical thing, which is really interesting because the tower is eight stories high, but it's not very big in terms of how far away you are from each other, and it's got a double helix Staircases yeah, I saw, I that go a up video to the top, mm-hmm. and so that also that DNA, the idea of DNA, seemed so interesting to me. And how would you make a musical structure that had that double spiral kind of form? I'm not sure I successfully did that, but I mean, it was very inspiring to work with it, and um, and how DNA has that core, but then it has all these little offshoots. And how would you work with that musically and visually and, you know, with the body? So and you also had the musicians a, were all over the place in the tower, right? Yes. And the audience, the mm-hmm. way that the double helix works is that the audience is on one strand and then the performers are on the other strand. But if you looked at it, you actually wouldn't know how it worked exactly in, because you never can reach where the audience is except to go over the top and back around. Mm-hmm. But you're really close to the audience. So in a way, the audience and the performers are woven together. It's yeah. such a beautiful situation. You're and like so on parallel staircases. We're on parallel staircases, and, but we can never reach each other. So. But, but but you know what What struck me also, though, is it's, it's songs of, ascent, of, of ascension. But when, you, when I watch this... Um, it's the circular. I mean, there's the moment where you, where everything goes up and down again, right? 
Yes. So it was it was actually circular. It wasn't just up. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know I know that maybe song maybe I should have called it called it songs of going up and down. <laughs> but, uh, well, no, but, but maybe I, ascension always has going down in it or something. You know, I think it does. Uh, uh, you know, I think there are two parts of the. You know, we have the heaven principle, the mm-hmm. earth principle, and the human principle, and they you, you weave them together, and that's how they're you know they're unified. Yeah. So it had both aspects, but also the acoustical situation in that in that tower was so unique, and you know to be able to even hear each other was so interesting. So I, I was just trying to work with, um, you know, just that very extreme. Like sometimes something would come from way down at the bottom, hmm. and the rest of the performers would be way up at the top, but the one performer would be way down at the bottom, and the audience couldn't see the entire thing, but hmm. you could hear the whole thing. Hmm. You know, th- this is this is true of your art, but it's also true of your of your Buddhism. I'm, I want to say this. Um, you know, it's always a cliche to imagine that Buddhism is just about you know sitting down, following the breath, or making <laughs> your mind empty. You know, right? That's the the simplistic uh, cliche. But mm. I I really see you kind of living and working with th- this also this narrative playful kind of melodrama melodrama that's there in Buddhist tradition right stories about mm-hmm. Milarepa in the cave and the mm-hmm. demons coming in and mm-hmm. <laughs> inviting mm-hmm. them to tea there's a playfulness mm-hmm. um in your art and in the way you bring your uh spiritual sensibility into that uh do you know what I'm talking about are you yes i do <sighs> i mean i think it's something you know play Play is something to really think about, you know, mm-hmm. because I, I I say that to myself. You know, right now I'm working on a, a commission for a San Francisco symphony, and I just keep on saying, remember playfulness, Meredith? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like at the piano, just like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Um, but, I mean, I think that sense of playfulness is is um, the sense of, of being alive. That's another aspect of being awake. Mm-hmm. And the, and mm-hmm. the fluidity, uh, the it's really about fluidity, about being so in the moment that you are in pinpoint focus, but at the same time, you're completely open to what the moment has to give you or to tell you. And I think that has to do with the playfulness and that, and people can feel that, you know, I think that that's what you're giving an audience is that spirit of, of, of the give and take that playfulness um, implies. Right, it's awake and it's responsive. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And light. I think there's something yes. in, in uh, which yes. is also about um, Buddhism. You know, the wonderful practice, and certainly you you hear that a lot in the Zen, with the Zen practice with Suzuki Roshi, and you know all these um, you know these these masters that are just saying lighten up. Right. Don't take yourself <laughs> I, so seriously. Don't take exactly. me so seriously. Your teacher, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of Buddhism is that the Buddha was a teacher, and and it's not a theistic tradition, and that it's much more about. Um, you know, he always said, don't believe what I say. <laughs> Find out for yourself. Yeah. So I, I would love to talk about um, impermanence in that project. And I know that that has also been connected with with life for you. Um, Very much so. Mm-hmm. So would you, would you tell that story? And Well, I lost my partner of 22 years. So that was a very, that was... Um, in a sense, that was the biggest um, wake-up call that I ever had in my life up to that point and probably from that point on because I think that when you have uh, that kind of loss, um, nothing can ever be the same. And it was a blessing. uh, You know, I I also saw the blessing, not the blessing of the loss, but the blessing of of 
being part of of life and and the blessing of being of being aware of the billions of people that go through loss all the time. Right. So you know, in a way, I feel like you can be compassionate of other people's pain, but if you really haven't experienced it, it's really hard to know what that really does to the way that you think about life, life and death. So it was very profound, and um, I really tried to not. Um, separate myself from the grieving process and or not try to defend myself from the grieving process but to really go right into it and right through it and i knew that there was never going to be an end you know it's 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 kind of a it's really a folly to tell you know to say to someone well have you gotten over it or you know has there been closure i mean there really never is mm-hmm. and that again is the beauty of of knowing that we we will be here and gone. You know, the light goes on and the little light bulb goes off, but you leave love behind. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, you just leave love behind. That's what you. That's what it comes down to. The Beatles had it right. <laughs> All you need is love. I mean, it's really true. And so, you know, there was it was it was such a feeling of being part of of the sea of of life, the sea of humanity, and. Um, the raw heartedness of of life that makes you appreciate so much the moments that you have. So you know that that's what I you know I, I'm so grateful. So what happened uh, that was really interesting was that about two months after she died, um, I got an email from uh, a group in in England that they they call themselves Rosetta Life, and what they do is that they go into the different hospices in England. And um, they work with the people that have had the diagnosis of terminal illness. And they say, well, is there any kind of artwork that you would like to do? You know, would you like to write a poem about your process or, or about anything? Would you like to, you know, make some music? And then they'll get an artist to go in and help them. Hmm. So, you know, if somebody wants to make a painting but they've never painted in their lives but they feel that that's the way they're going to express this process – Somebody comes in and helps them. A painter comes in and helps them to, to them to make make a work. And so they they said, "Well, we're making a, we're going to have a festival of these uh, hospice patients' uh, work, and we'd like you to make some music. I think it was for a play, or it might have been a play of of some of the stories of these uh, people that were in this process. And um, would you do that?" And I said, "Well." I actually don't work that way, you know, with stories and narrative that much, but I would really actually like to make a piece, a, a total piece. Um, and, and I'm thinking of nothing but impermanence. So I think I've, I'll call it the impermanence project. <laughs> and, you know, I'd like to make the whole piece. And so, and then, of course, after I started working on it a few months later, I said, what was I thinking? You know, so again, it was this, <laughs> how do you make a piece about impermanence? It's impossible. You know, it's like an oxymoron to make a form a about impermanence. About- yeah, a project about impermanence. <laughs> yeah. so, um, but I, I, I knew that, well, I, I got actually on a, on a long retreat that I did up at Gampo Abbey, which is up in, in Canada, in, in Nova Scotia. Of course, I was supposed to label it thinking immediately when I got the idea, but it, I did keep it in my mind, I have to admit. But um, I, I got this image <laughs> of... Um, <laughs> okay. Don't tell anybody. You get okay. a bee yeah, in meditation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I got the image of um, a crystal, like holding a crystal in your hand, and that you look at these different facets or faces of a crystal... And that if if I started working that way, in other words, that 
we're glimpsing at this one facet of impermanence, and then we turn it over, and maybe the next facet has nothing to do with the first facet, but we're seeing another side of it, that that would actually be a beautiful structure. Mm. And so what the first part of impermanence is that each of the sections, we actually say the name of the section. So if I'm singing last song, I just say last song, and then I sing it, or, or we have another section called particular dance or seeds. Or, um, you know, there are different titles of the sections or um, disequilibrium is another section. So um, so it's very honest. And I thought that was a good way of, of trying to work with it. And then the other part of it was that they had asked me if I could do something with the, the, the hospice patients. And so we had this wonderful workshop. I came to London and mostly we were just doing a lot of talking. Um, people were laughing a lot. And a lot of it was about pain management and just about their mm. experiences. And I think the second one I did, which was a few months later, I asked them about their idea of their own death. And they had these amazing images. Like one said that she wanted to be shot up into the air like a like a rocket mm. and then and then sort of flow down, you know, onto the earth or something. You know, it was mm. sort of that that idea. Or her ashes, I guess she wanted her ashes to be shot up into the air and then the ashes <laughs> would come down. Uh, onto the earth. And, you know, people had these amazing imaginative uh, ways of thinking about their own dying. But the first one was really more about, you know, pain and, and um, you know, and, and how they had been so surprised by these diagnoses. And so um, I sang um, The Tale, which is a very um, funny piece, um, where it's about this old woman who... Um, you know, is talking about, I still have my hands. Ha ha ha. It's like one, it's one of my songs that actually really has text, but it's more like a, a sort of litany. And then I sang, um, so they loved that, you know, cause it was really funny. And they said, we want to hear this bit again. We love that. And then I sang last song for them and it, because I had started working on it and, um, they, some of them said that it was actually almost too much, that it was too close to the process that they were going mm-hmm. through. And then but then they said the more they heard it, they could have heard it all night. So, you know, it was became this kind of also something really intimate for them. See, that's why and, I wonder if that's, you know, what I was saying earlier, that because your music cuts through very quickly and immediately mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to things that mm-hmm. in a way words may act as a shield or, you know, the traditional way we do things. Well, you know what's ironic about that, Krista, is both of those pieces have words. That has words. <laughs> because, because Last Song has also another litany of just words that come from a wonderful text by um, uh, James Hillman. Okay. So it's the language also that was reaching them. Why do you sometimes decide to add words? I mean, how do you know that? You Because that's pretty rare for you, isn't it? Yeah, well, the way that I, if I do use words, they're really used, used more abstractly. It's not like... Um, if you hear the words, you actually are a story is being told. Right. It's actually more almost like a chant yeah. is the way that I think about it. Yeah. Like um, both the tale and last song have this sense of the word as litany. And um, and I think in last song, what I was going for was the idea of saying a word, but then little by little, the word dissolves mm. into pure sound. See, that's still different from... It's still different from the way that, you know, singing a song where mm-hmm. the song is actually giving you the content exactly. in a way. Um, but and so what I ended up doing because they wanted to, um, they asked if if I could do something where they were in or their experiences or they were actually in the piece, and that became di- difficult for me because I, it's hard for me to work that way. And so what I ended up coming up with was that the piece began with hearing them sing a melody called Mika's Melody Number no. Five, which was a, a melody that my partner. 
um, she used to like to just improvise in the studio, even though she was not a singer. And I happened to come upon a tape of some of these improvisations. Mm. And so what I did was I notated one of them, and then I actually changed it a little bit and you know made it more into a form and added some of my own phrases. So it was a little bit like a collaboration through time and space. Yeah. Um, and so I wrote out the melody, and because they said, oh, we love to sing. And so I wrote the <laughs> melody out for them, and then they sang it, and they, you know, they, but they didn't, uh. couldn't really carry a tune that well. But it was so, each of them sang it, you know. So um, the melody goes like, um, Ayo, 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 Zo, Ayo, Ayo, Zo. So, you know, that was the melody. And then they'd be going like, Ayo, 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 Zo. And so each of them had a different way of doing it. And so when the audience came in, they um, heard the, their voices. And then I had a film of just their faces just looking straight out at the camera, very, mm. very, very close. And so when they came to see it, the ones that were still alive by the time we did Impermanence, it just meant so much to them. And then also their families for the the ones that had passed before we ended up oh, doing the piece, it meant so much to them. Right. So they were actually really present in the piece. So that was a, another aspect that was really mm. beautiful. To, That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um. I hope my answers aren't too long. No, they're sorry. great. No, you know, this is the, no, no, it's not on <laughs> and on. It's a real conversation. It's so wonderful. I have to say, because my medium is radio, I'm just also hearing how we're going to be able to weave your music throughout. And it's, be so, it's so beautiful. It's, I can the only thing that. you don't have is a tail. I wonder whether we should send you the tail. Well, we can find it. Or if we can't, Yeah, you can we'll find it you. easily. It's yeah. on Dolman Music yeah. on ECM. It's no, very we'll, easy to we'll find get it. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this whole notion of impermanence and the death of your partner, I... Uh, it's clear also that it's been for you, um, it, it's also coincided with you thinking about aging. Um, and I've, you know, I've seen you out there talking about that, talking with Bjork about that, and you talked to Bjork about that, mm-hmm, about aging. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, um, and in Buddhist fashion, I mean, also talking about these things as teachers. I, I have to also say that uh, there's such a fluidity in your body and your movement. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I'm just wa- I'm not sitting across from you, unfortunately, but watching you <laughs> on video that kind of feels ageless, and your your braids are ageless, also. Um, uh, is that something that you're working with? Um, you know, how how are you experiencing that, or how how do you think your art uh, shapes the way you might be experiencing that? Well, I've been noticing that the older that I get, the simpler uh, the work gets gets in a way. Mm. I mean, in, in, in a way, it's more refining it from something very complex to something very simple. And that, that within simplicity is complexity. And I think as a young artist, it was much more, the surface was more complex. Um, I was working with film and, you know, weaving all these elements together. But I think that um, as I've gotten older, I've just realized that, um, that the the most essential is is what reaches people the most. You know that's what it seems to me now. Mm. And um, you know, so I think a lot about space within in the work and um, time and space. Um, and so I think it's more that one of the beauties of being an artist is that it is timeless. And um, 
You know, the funny thing is that it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> I mean, I, you would think that you've been, you know, I've been working for so many years that, oh, I can make a piece so easily. But I think what I do is I put myself through the, pro- the same process of going to zero every time. Right, right. And, you know, this kind of risky situation. And so sometimes I'm, uh, you know, I think, why do I do this? And why, you know, isn't it more easy now after all these years? But I actually think that that's what does keep you very young, you know, because you're always questioning. Mm. You know, I think that m- making art is actually about questions and um, and that you never take anything for granted. And you're you're in this slightly danger situation, which I think is really good. <laughs> and then I always say that I'm scared to death. And I think, uh, um, you know, what we what we learn in, in, in Buddhist practices to tolerate the unknown, mm. you know, because that that's reality. The reality is that we don't know anything and um, we really don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And so you learn to tolerate that discomfort of not knowing and 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 fear. I mean, I really I think every time I'm I'm just terrified. I'm I'm actually terrified. I realize this every even now working you, on this piece. When you every perform time. when you write when you're no. creating something. Well well when I perform I'm still nervous, which I think is a good sign mm-hmm. because it means that you still have passion for what you're doing. But every time I make something new, it's never like, Oh, this is gonna be so easy. No, it's always this terror. And then I sit with that for a while, and then I say to myself, step by step, and then I just start working, and it's a step-by-step kind of process. And then at a certain point, I realize I'm so interested in this. And then once that interest comes in or curiosity comes in, then the fear goes away. Hmm. And so that's, it's very interesting that curiosity is a great antidote to fear. Mm, it is, that's a lovely, lovely thing to think about. Um. You do work, you work with a lot of people, right? I mean, you just told the story about the, the people in hospice and uh, mm-hmm. you teach and train and I mean, you seem to just, there seem to be, seems to be so much teaching also that goes on even as you're creating a performance. Um, I wondered if, uh, do you have um, any just kind of lessons that are contained that you might be able to, to do for our listeners? Um, I was, was reading something about click songs. I don't know if that's something oh. you can teach. That's a huge, complicated That's pretty thing, hard, right? yeah. Well, <laughs> is the way there anything, that we teach... Yeah, tell me. Go ahead. Excuse no. me. Let, why don't you finish that? I'm, no, no, I, I was just, I'm just wondering if there's anything that, that you might be able to do that we could... Um, where people could just have a moment of that teaching. <laughs> teaching over the radio? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, if you can't do it, hmm. you can't, but see what you think. Is there anything? Well, oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, it's... Um, Hmm, I don't know if I could do that. Um, actually, I don't know if I could do that, Krista. Okay, okay. That's right. To be totally right. honest with right. you. We're going to talk for just a few more minutes. If, if you yeah. have a brain um, flash, you tell me. The, the way that we teach, and, and my ensemble also teaches a lot, is um, we do workshops, and a lot of them have to do with getting in contact with all these different aspects, like um, you know, with the voice and with the body, with the breath, um, and then um, sometimes uh, we teach some of the repertoire that that people can learn, so they have the experience of the joy of 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 singing and performing some of this music. But then the other aspect is also to get people in touch with their creativity and um, you know how uh, different aspects of how do you make something, you know, mm-hmm. because I think making something is uh, ultimately is such a joy. So that's really what the teaching is about, and in a way, it's also a way of uh, it's it's kind of a teaching of a way of thinking about things, mm-hmm. you know, which is this kind of anything is possible mentality, 
and not having barriers between things and not having categories, but really actually using all the elements that we have as human beings and, and, and affirming that width and that at the depth that we all have, and then the same that's the same way that we affirm the incredible scope that the audience has. So I think that way of thinking about things is what we also teach in it's a it's a kind of philosophical workshop as well as it is uh, about performing. I know some journalist was writing that um, that one thing that happens when when someone listens to you when when you hear this these songs <clears throat> this music come out of your voice then you want to see if you can do that with your voice and I, I mm-hmm. found that to be absolutely true so I've been. Walking around clicking? singing. No, no, not <laughs> clicking. I haven't tried that. But, I mean, it's interesting because, and it, I think maybe counterintuitive, because what comes out of your mouth is not not like other songs that you've learned in your life, right? It's, mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's recognizable as music, but um, mm-hmm. it's different. And yet uh, it feels familiar, right? It feels like something you take in and want mm-hmm. to take in. Well, I think that it's... Actually, all of us as human beings are part of the world vocal family. I like to think that all of us are part of that that world vocal family. And there are these, when you start exploring your voice, there are sounds that you find that do um, transcend particular culture. You know, they're used in different ways in the culture, but they are sounds that are part of the vocabulary of of the human voice. And the human voice is the original instrument. So you're going back to the very beginnings of of utterance. Mm. And I think that's why when you hear it, it brings up, you know, in a way it's like um, the memory of of being a human being, Mm. hopefully. You know, I mean, that's that's what I would like people to get in touch with. So um, and then sometimes the the songs sound very simple to do, but they're actually really hard. Right, right, right. (laughs) So sometimes people, um, you know, I've had choruses of of really good people and they think, oh, you know, we can just read this down and it's going to be so easy. I'm like, "Mm, I'm not sure. And then when they end up working on it, they're like, oh, my goodness, this is really hard. So it's it's deceptive in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you you know, you may have just answered this question and, and, and you may have just had your last words, but uh, I did, I did, that's kind of where I wanted to come with you is, you know, how this way you've lived your life through these media of music and art and, and also your, your Buddhist practice, um, mm-hmm. you know, how has your idea of what it means to be human you know where how do, how do these things shape that in a particular way where where are you with that right now well i think you know what what i'm so grateful for every day is just that i've been able to do what i love and i and i see that that's n- not always the case with people's lives and i don't know what it was as a young person but i somehow knew that i was going to follow this path wherever it was going to lead and sometimes it's very lonely, but at the same time, uh, it's just such a blessing to be able to to do that, to be able to try to listen to what life has in store for you and you know what's being said to you, and then to try to follow it, and that you know just whatever that takes. And so, it has a lot of challenges, and and maybe some people would not want to exactly go that path, but um, it doesn't. You don't have a precedent to know what the next step on that path is going to be. Right. And so that's that's and I I'm, I'm so grateful for it. I mean, I just sometimes I just can hardly believe that you know that I've had this life. It's that has been so incredibly rich, 
in in so much love, you know, and um, music and art. I mean, it's something that how can you even articulate the scope of that? You know, that that's that you are part of that, that you've been allowed to be part of that, and that you've been allowed to share that with people all over the world. That we've we've traveled all over the world and have shared this, and and then these amazing people, you know, in my life that mm-hmm. have helped me so much. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's it's been a wonderful life. <laughs> it's a name of a movie, <laughs> but it re- you know it really has. Yeah. Is there anything else, any song or work that you'd like to talk about, or something you're working on now? What are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on um, a piece uh, for a San Francisco Symphony, which is I'm calling Realm Variations right now because I'm working. Um, with um, very very high instruments, low instruments, and and medium instruments, and sort of exploring those those worlds of these different realms. But uh, you mean instruments of, as in vocal instruments or different voice, voices, voices and instruments? Okay. A piccolo. You know, my, mm-hmm. the, the commission oh, was to make okay. a piece for piccolo, which is an instrument that I don't know well at all. And um, and then uh, I'm working with very low instruments like contrabass, clarinet, uh-huh. and then so it's it's seven players and six voices. And so I have two high singers, two medium singers, and two low singers. So I'm just working on these different realms of sound, and also they're almost like little landscapes. <laughs> but the but this piece will be part of something I've been thinking about for the last few years, uh, which is the working title is on behalf of nature, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm really been thinking a, a lot about ecology and you know our world as many people are and it's again another piece that you almost can't make a piece about and where that title on behalf of nature it comes from and I, I may use it I may not but I mean it's a good working title for me it comes from some of the early essays of Gary Snyder who was saying that um, you know ma- making art He's is a Buddhist is, poet right B- Buddhist poet mm-hmm. and very a uh, person that's always been um, involved with the environment for you know since the 70s yeah. and um so he, you know, in, in an article that I read of his, he said, well, art is speaking on behalf of nature. Mm. So it's actually giving voice to, you know, what what might be, you know, might not be able to be heard. So that, it just seems so interesting to me. And I've been, um, you know, re- I don't really know what I'm doing in terms of the large work yet, you know, images or anything. But I mean, it's something I'm, again, contemplating. But the music that I'm working on now, I'm sure will be part of this piece. Mm. So that's the project that I'm doing right now. Is there anything else you feel like you want to sing, talk about? Hmm. Do you want me to talk anything about the songs that you have or, you know, are you okay, Krista? Well, we definitely have enough. Um, I mean, there's so much here to work Material, with already. Right. Mm-hmm. But, if there, but if there's one of them you want to talk about in particular, I, I'm, I welcome that. Well, there's one song that I, um, that, uh, I would like to—wait, to, um, I'll start better than that— um, one song that's uh, an unusual song for me that also does have a little bit of text in it is a song that I wrote when I first started doing um, the formal sitting practice, which was in the, the mid-'80s. Um, and most of my songs deal with emotion, you could say, between the cracks of emotion. You know, it's they're mm-hmm. not really... Um, dealing with a particular, you know, anger or something that you can point your finger at. I usually think of them as the shades between the emotions mm-hmm. and that the voice can can dig those those shades of emotion out. But I, I got very inspired. Um, the, my early um, practice was in the Shambhala training, which is um, was um, created by Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche. 
and um, the Buddhist, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And these teachings usually come out during times of, of hard times in the world. Shambhala was a, a mythical kingdom that was uh, ruled by an enlightened king who asked the Buddha to not come with his monks, but to ba- basically come and teach him how to have enlightened society. That's the tradition. And in many, many different um, Asian countries, Shambhala is like a mythic kingdom. It's not only in the Tibetan tradition. So um, he, the teachings came to him um, you know, at a certain point, um, and, and he, he started teaching them, I think, in the, in the beginning 80s. I may be wrong uh, historically, but he brought them to his students. And, um, and so it's very much about how do you become a, a, a citizen in this world? Very simple, down to earth. Your practice is very simple, but you, it's very much about how are you in the world? You know, how do you look at the person that's counting change for you in the, in the, uh, you know, the grocery store? Or how do you deal with a person that you don't get along with? Well, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, how are you waking up all the time to see what the moment is? How are you? How are you on the subway? <laughs> you know, how are you when something really bad happens to you? You know, just how do you become a citizen in this world um, and and um, perpetuate nonviolence? And you know, there are many many aspects to it. And one of them is um, the second. I think the second um, level of Chambala training is about fear and fearlessness, and it's about acknowledging your fear rather than pushing it away because a part of the violence comes from not even acknowledging that you're afraid. It's actually that you're afraid of the fear. Right, but And then what happens is that, that, yeah, that mm-hmm. gets pushed down and then that gets transformed into to anger or violence. You know, I mean, it's really so much of the world that we're living in now, you know, what's going on and the way that people are manipulated or these wars or violence uh, situations, violent situations come from basic fear and terror, you know, mm. and not in ter- terms of terrorism, yeah, but, but terror human terror. Mm-hmm. So um, I started thinking about that. And then I started working on a song that's called Scared Song. Right. I and, yeah. yeah. And so um, I think that that's quite an unusual piece for me because it really is dealing with a very specific emotion. Well, and I'll tell you something piece, funny in that, was, uh, um, please. <laughs> on the list, it's, it's, it's misspelled. It's called Sacred Song. <laughs> so, did somebody type that up wrong? Or I think yeah. that, that's well, in iTunes. They have it it's, as sacred somewhere. Song. I saw it, and but it's in, yeah, and it's too. an interesting mistake. I thought, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, I was thinking about that too. The, how, how interesting! You know, I, maybe the computer saw "Scared Song" and then changed it, it to sense. "Sacred Song." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because how could there be a song called "Scared Song"? That's right. impossible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in that one also, the, I do have words, but again, they really kind of disintegrate into um, states of being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they're really used in a pretty abstract kind of way. Yeah, and the the, the fear, the scared is experienced as much as it's spoke, as it's a word, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's in exactly. your voice. It's communicated it's like on a, in kind mm-hmm. of three-dimensionally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that's an unusual song, and that, it might be interesting to have that. Mm. Well, this has just been really wonderful, and um, so, yes. So oh, okay. Do we have little pick up when you were just uh, talking about um, the intifada? Yes, you had referred it to as intifada. The, yeah, I'd, we'd love her to say it one more time because she said into she said infantada. I hey, knew what I did just it wrong. Just like scared sacred, you said infantada. Yeah. So. so should I just say the word? Yeah, in, just say in, in, just say during the intifada. Okay, during the intifada. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> 
I knew I had done it wrong. We can probably I, I, even digitally manipulate it, but oh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. um, I just hope that yeah. we have the pleasure of meeting face-to-face because, as I said, um, I, I listen – when I'm in New York, I listen every Sunday night. And it's just so – I just have loved these, the, the, what you're doing. It's so in, incredibly inspiring. I love the talks with the scientists, and yeah. I loved the talk that you did with that extraordinary uh, – uh, a man who was is living in Israel, but he's comes from a Muslim background. The um, and he lives uh, in you know Muhammad in, in the Galil. Russia, who's yeah, he lives in the Galil, and then he was you know I've been to Israel a few times, uh-huh. and then just the idea that that you know they they basically headed for the hills, yeah, and but right. they were not going anywhere. Yeah. They just came back to live, and so you know I think that there's so many people that don't even think about that community. Yeah. Right. What and, an extraordinary man. Yeah, that's I love I love telling those sides of the story that are oh, so important but so don't get important. told because they don't turn into headlines. Um, and I feel that we don't know, you know, I mean, I haven't been in Israel in many years since the mid eighties, but there's the people that I knew in Israel, I mean they were they were so pro dialogue and there are mm-hmm. so many people in Israel that we never hear about I here. Know. That are come from such a different point. The Israelis themselves that come from such a different point of view, and we never hear that point of view. Yeah, I mean, we they're they're more anguished than you know than anyone outside could be. Oh, you know, so it's very complicated, and you know, of course, everything is simplified in in the news here, and it's a very sad situation. Yeah. Well, I, and, so I is, hope... and so is what's going on in, in um, you know, Tibet, really like, wow. Right. <laughs> I know. Because I was just, I just did a, pr- a pilgrimage to India and Bhutan. Right. And I ended up um, in Dharamsala because I sang for His Holiness. I saw that. The Dalai Lama at the end of the, uh, 1999. And we were, and, and talk about playful. He mm-hmm. loved the singing. And um, I decided to do three songs that were had some humor because I had seen a documentary about him uh, where he said, I don't like music or I don't listen to music. The man said, well, what kind of music do you listen to? He said, I don't listen to music. I don't like music. And so I, I mean, he probably didn't say I don't like music, but, but he said he I never listen to, to music. And, but he loves to laugh. Yeah. So I thought, well, what am I going to sing for this man? So I sang one piece called Porch, which was more spacious and, you know, kind of opening the space. It was more like an invocation kind of piece. And then I sang Click Song Number 1, mm. which he loved. He kept on looking, like, how was she doing that? <laughs> and then I did my, the well, Jews Harp piece. singers, of course, so. Yeah, but he, <laughs> we, it was like, we, it was like two, two young children mm. l- just loving each other so much. Mm. And so, um, Ah, oh, what a what a person! So I was able to to have three days of teachings with him. Uh, there were maybe two oh. or three thousand people there. I mean, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then we we that was the point at that point um, that people that some of the monks were um, you know um, immolating themselves, mm. you know, in protest. And yeah. so we got to hear a lot of what was going on. And it was it's so, such a sad situation. Yeah, it's very close to what happened to the Native Americans and you know in the United States. Although I think it will be more visible, you know, somehow there may yeah, be some no, it, hope it, in that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this, the, I think, that again, this is the irony. We are actually watching that process mm-hmm. in a way that people didn't watch it, you know, when that happened here. Yeah. But it's very much the same kind of situation where culture is actually getting erased. And I think that that's what His Holiness is most concerned about. It's more, you know, that's why he's he's saying maybe uh, it's not going to be independence, but he wants autonomy so that the culture is not destroyed. Yeah. It's interesting that he's removed himself from political power. You know, it'll be yeah. interesting to see how that changes. I mean, we probably won't see that in our lifetimes, but how yes. that will change the tradition. 
Yes, I think he he's in such a difficult, you know, mm-hmm. I think that he was in such a difficult position um, that there was no, that he felt that maybe it was not uh, of benefit, you know, I mean, in his mind. Yeah, yeah, I think he, he think, I think that it left the, the religion, it left the culture in a way vulnerable to other mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, mm-hmm. I hope we meet someday, too. I really Me do. Me, too, Krista. And also, I love the book, too. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real fan. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's a mutual admiration yeah. society. Thank and you. I, I, I'm thrilled. When we produce this, you'll know. We may have some questions, but I, I can't Certainly. wait to do this now. And uh, Thank and, you so yeah. much, Krista. And also, I loved the uh, Roseanne Cash. was yeah. so great. I mean, <laughs> she was saying a lot of the stuff that I, I, I feel like there she was... There were real echoes. Isn't that interesting? I'm telling you. Yeah. I, I was just like, I would also love to, to meet her to just say thank you because she was just articulating so much of the same same ways that I think about yeah, things. Yeah, and you're such different artists. I mean, it's just... And we're such different artists, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, I hope we get to continue this conversation sometime. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Krista. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.